Open your Bibles, please, to Acts chapter 6. On Wednesday evening when I came home, I didn't notice the usual uh, pile of mail where it usually belongs. Whichever one of us gets home first gets the mail. And uh, so when you come in, there's, you know, some flyer from Coles and some newspaper article and a little little sheet that's two weeks old. News, mail wasn't there, and so uh, um, later on, I don't know if it was Wednesday or Thursday. What? Wednesday, Wednesday yeah. And uh, so then later on I said, did you get the mail? No. So I put on my Birkenstocks and go out into the cold. And I look in the mailbox and I feel like Charlie Brown. And then I shut the mailbox and I go, you idiot, it's Veterans Day, there's no mail today. And I came back in and I said, you had a, you had a perfect opportunity to really, really uh, give me one of those right there. And, but she didn't remember either. <laughs> I think she remembered while I was in transit. The mail only comes when the entire postal system is working. You can't have a guy out delivering mail if it's not getting sent into him from other parts of the country. It doesn't, it doesn't go out in Ferndale if it doesn't move through Everett or, or wherever else it comes from. As we talk about spiritual gifts today and as we continue to understand how they work, you need to understand this. Spiritual gifts only work if, if the entire spiritual system in your life is working. God has created our lives to be a unified whole. We've been talking about spiritual gifts. I put this on the back of your notes. You don't need to write any of this down. There are different scripture references here, uh, which may be helpful to you as you continue to understand uh, what these gifts are. But these spiritual gifts, these special enablings that God puts in every believer at the moment they believe only function when the Spirit is functioning in our life. Um, You can know uh, about all of these gifts, but if the central system of righteous living isn't working, the gifts aren't working. Let's uh, look at Acts chapter 6 and understand how the Spirit comes to work in our lives. Starting in verse 8. And Stephen, full of faith and power did great wonders and signs among the people. Then there arose from what it, some from what, it is, what is called the synagogue of the freedmen, Cyrenians, Alexandrians, those from Cilicia and Asia, disputing with Stephen. They didn't like his message. And they were not able to resist the wisdom and the spirit by which he spoke. That is, try as they might to to beat him out with logical argumentation or scriptural argumentation, they couldn't do it. So, verse 11, what did they do? They secretly induced men to say, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people, the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him, seized him, and brought him to the council. That is, they took him into court. They also set up false witnesses who said, This man does not cease to speak blasphemous words against the holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth 
will destroy this place and change the customs which Moses delivered to us. And all who sat in the council, looking steadfastly at him, saw his face as the face of an angel. Then the high priest said, Are these things so? And he said, Brethren and fathers, listen. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he dwelt in Haran. And he goes on now with a whole sermon, this whole chapter. You, if, like, if you're like me, you've got to turn the page. It goes on. And we're going to pick it up down in verse 42. What he does is he goes back to Abraham and he chronicles a whole series of events that all came out the same way. And here's how they came out in verse 42. Then God turned and gave them up to worship the host of heaven as it is written in the book of the prophets. Did you offer me slaughtered animals and sacrifices during 40 years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? You also took up the tabernacle of Molech and the star of your god Remphan, images which you made to worship, and I will carry you away beyond Babylon. Our fathers, that is the, you know, our, our predecessors, our fathers had the tabernacle of witness in the wilderness as God appointed, instructing Moses to make it according to the pattern he had seen, which our fathers, having received it in turn, also brought with Joshua in the land, into the land possessed by the Gentiles, whom God drove out before the face of our fathers until the days of David, who found favor before God and asked to find a dwelling for the God of Jacob. But Solomon built him a house. However, the Most High does not dwell in temples made with hands. As the prophet says, heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool. What house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Has my hand not made all these things? You stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears. You always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who foretold the coming of the just one, that's Christ, of whom you now have become the betrayers and murderers, who have received the law by the direction of angels and have not kept it. And when they heard these things, they were cut to the heart, and they gnashed at him with their teeth. It doesn't mean they bit him. That means they went, ah, like that. It was some kind of an insult thing. But he being full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Look, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Then they cried out with a loud voice, stopped their ears and ran at him with one accord. And they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul. And they stoned Stephen, and as he was calling on God and saying, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he knelt down and cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not charge them with this sin. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. That is, he went to be with the Lord. Now, what's so fascinating is God made Stephen's life a living example of the very message he was preaching. 
He went through a whole series of events from the life of Israel, and he said, you stiff-necked people, you are always resisting the Holy Spirit. Which one of the prophets did you not persecute? And in the end of his message, they picked up stones and killed him. And that was the whole point. He was saying, look, God sent all of these prophets, and now he sent Jesus. You killed Jesus. You need to stop resisting the work of God. By God's inspiration, Stephen put his finger right on the singular hindrance to becoming a child of God. When you hear the gospel, you are either submissive or resistant to the work of God. And the thing that I want you to understand, first of all, today is this. The Holy Spirit only dwells in submissive hearts. When you hear the gospel of God, you're either submissive or resistant. Um, listen to what Jesus said about the Holy Spirit. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, that it's to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I depart, I will send him to you. And when he has come, here's what he will do. He will convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. We have an example of that right here in this text of Acts 7. Stephen stood up and preached God's truth, and the Holy Spirit went just like this in those folks' heart. It says they were cut to the heart. Uh, when you have interpersonal difficulties, sometimes you feel, you feel that feeling down inside of you, and it hurts. These people were that convicted by the Holy Spirit, and yet they were resisting. It's, it's as though the Holy Spirit's pushing one way and they're pushing back the other way. And he says, why do you resist? When you come to church and you think that I've been reading your journal and preaching messages directed toward you with laser precision, that is the convicting ministry of the Holy Spirit. That's not me. I would read your journal if I got a chance. That's the beauty of the ministry. I don't need to do that. Because the Holy Spirit is the one who's doing the ministry anyway. It's just my job to speak the truth. And he takes it and goes, hey, hey, listen. When you say that bad word and you feel guilt in your heart, that is the Holy Spirit going, hey, that's wrong. When you let your passions control your actions and you do that thing that you ought not to do, and then you feel guilty. That is the Holy Spirit. When you hear a believer talking about their victory in Christ, and you desire that same victory, that's the ministry of the Holy Spirit, convicting you of what is righteous. And you go, man, I want to do that righteousness. When I stand and speak God's truth, that without Christ you are a sinner bound for hell, and that out of love God sent Jesus to pay the penalty for your sin, and that God will only give you salvation if you believe and do not try to earn God's favor. And when you hear and understand that message, you either receive the truth and the Savior and become a child of God, or you resist the convicting ministry of the Holy Spirit. 
If God is going to be in your life, your resistance to his convicting ministry has to stop. See, the, 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 problem, the problem with Christianity is not that it's hard to understand. It's hard to accept. Because it cuts the heart. It tells us where we are wrong and God is right. If you are resisting the saving ministry of the Holy Spirit, you will not be a child of God. And you will not possess a spiritual gift with which to participate in this great work of God. I was out riding with, with a police officer in Tuckwilla years ago, and, and we went to a place where you want to constantly watch your back, you want to stand against the wall and keep an eye on everything that's going on, a certain apartment complex that was sort of known for folks to live there that are criminal types. And we were looking for somebody who had a warrant. And so they, there was guy I was riding with and two or three others, and they were just trying to find this person. Well, in the midst of this, here comes a fella who was not the fellow we're looking for, getting all up into business of these police officers. Now, you, you got to know that a guy's drunk or high or something, because if he's wearing a gun and a knife and a, and a nightstick and has got pepper spray and you got nothing, you are not coming out on the good end of this deal. So you got to know the guy's not in his right mind. And he just, is, he just doesn't like cops. And he says, sir, please, you know, step away. And he keeps at it. And there's this explorer, which is a, you know, a Boy Scout, high school kid, and a great big tall guy. And, and, and this guy just decides he's going to persecute this, this explorer. Well, the explorer is not armed, and the police officer is going to take real poorly to that. And so he keeps saying, sir, you know, keeps doing the whole nice thing. And pretty soon, and his wife comes out and he goes, leave him alone. Come on back in the house. Come on back in the house. And he won't do it. So pretty soon they say, okay, buddy, you're going to jail. So they put him up against the wall. No, they pepper sprayed him first. I got bad news for you. Even police grade pepper spray doesn't work on people that are drunk or high too often. They put him up against the wall and he's still fussing and fussing and fighting. And so they give him a spanking. I've never seen them use a nightstick. I mean, in all my years, I've just never seen a nightstick used. They get it out and carry it. Usually that's enough. They spank them on the back of the legs right back here. Because they're taught to make pain, not to really hurt people or injure people. So they, they whip him around the back of the leg. Oh, he's fussing and fighting. Finally got him in handcuffs. And they got him in the car. And he got in the car and he laid in the seat and kicked the window. And they said, if you don't stop kicking the window, we're going to take you out and hog tie you. And he kicks the window, kicks the window. So they put him out on the ground, on his face, handcuffs back here with his legs tied up. And he's going, uh, uh, uh. I say, what's the problem? Really reminds me of what some people do when the Holy Spirit comes along and says, you need to accept Christ as your Savior. And all Christ wants to do is bring blessing to their life. And they fight and they kick and they gouge. And so God goes, okay. And they fight and they kick and they push and they resist. Friends, don't resist God. If he's tugging on your heart to believe and to confess your faith in Christ, do it. Do it. Because one of the great things that's going to happen is God is not only going to save you, but he's going to put a special ability in you. 
you who were resisting, he's going to put a special ability so that you can serve God. You can do great things in the body of Christ. The Holy Spirit only dwells in submissive hearts, but once we submit to him, we have to understand that our submission must continue. The Holy Spirit will only empower the submissive life of the Christian. Turn with me to Ephesians chapter 5, please. I'm going to have you turn to a verse because if, if you haven't ever underlined it and memorized it, you ought to. It's not a real long one. But it's an important one. And there's a principle that we want to try to understand real clearly today. Ephesians 5, verse 18. And do not be drunk with wine in which is dissipation or uselessness, but be filled with the Spirit. Do not be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. This little, the last phrase of this verse is a singular command in the Scripture. Be filled with the Holy Spirit. It's written in a command form. It's something we're supposed to do. And he tries to define the filling of the Spirit by a comparison with drunkenness. Now, he obviously, don't you know? think of some crazy thing. God's not trying to say that you're out of control and acting weird and whatnot. But he's saying, look, when a person drinks alcohol, there is a, there's an impact in which their, their mind and their perceptions are changed by the alcohol. I remember a big old strong farm boy named Larry when I was in high school. And Larry had a couple of cousins who were devious. And uh, they were all pagan and... One day, they got Larry loaded up on beer. And apparently, Larry couldn't hold his liquor that good. And then they were going around going, Hey, Larry, beat that kid up. Hey, Larry, hit that kid. And I was going, How can I hide from that? Because I'm not a fighter, especially when a guy is out of control on alcohol. Alcohol can control your behavior. And God says, Look, What's supposed to be happening is the Holy Spirit is supposed to be controlling your behavior. The ministry of the Holy Spirit starts at salvation. At the moment we accept Christ as Savior, the, the, the Holy Spirit takes up residence and he starts doing these things in our lives. And you're familiar with these verses. The fruit of the Spirit, the result of the Spirit being present and active is this list of good characteristics. Now, there are places in the Scripture that tell us to pursue these characteristics as things to add to our life, but here the point is simply this. If the Holy Spirit is active, He will produce these kinds of character qualities. Now, how does He do that? Well, the very next verse tells us what our part in this process is. And those who are Christ's have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. I believe verse 24 is the principle, and I believe the next two verses are are small applications. Do you want the Holy Spirit to control your life? 
then you have to crucify your flesh. For the believer, there are only two possibilities of control, your flesh or the Holy Spirit. In order for your spiritual gift to work, for it to be freed so that the Holy Spirit can produce things through you, you have to be controlled by Him. And in order to be controlled by Him, you've got to put your own sinful human desires to death. Let's look at some things that our flesh craves. The passions of the flesh are all about self. Our flesh, first of all, craves recognition. Take heed that you do not your charitable deeds before men to be seen by them. Otherwise, you have no reward from your Father in heaven. Therefore, when you do a charitable deed, do not sound a trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may have glory from men. Assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward. This, th- th- these verses are so over the top, we can't hardly believe that it's true, but it's not written in some uh, mystical parabolic formula. He says, look, the hypocrites, the Pharisees, who are all about show and not substance, they have a guy come along and go, Mr. Smith is about to give his offering now. And we go, really? People are that way? They were that way? The only way you're going to serve God genuinely is to cut that feeling out of your heart. Now, I, nobody here sounds a trumpet before they give an offering. Uh, we, we play the piano while the offering is being taken. But do we ever feel like stopping our service because nobody's been recognizing what we're doing? Do we ever gravitate toward a ministry position because somehow we we think there is status attached to it? We have got to crucify our flesh so the Spirit can just use us as He wills. I have some I had some crabgrass in my yard. I think it was crabgrass. Looked different. Looked like grass, but it was all different little spots. And, uh, boy, I just got tired of it finally this year. And I took the roundup and I went, so now I have brown spots in my yard. (laughs) But I don't have crabgrass, by golly. You know what? We need to hate the passion of the flesh so much that we take kind of a scorched earth approach to getting rid of it. That's what Jesus meant when he said, If your right hand offends you, cut it off. Really? Now what he was saying is there needs to be a radical amputation of sin. Our flesh craves recognition. Number two, our flesh craves control. Listen to this from uh, 3 John. I wrote to the church, but Diotrephes, who loves to have the preeminence does not receive us. He controls things. Therefore, if I come, I will call to mind his deeds, which he does, prating against us with malicious words, and not content with that, he himself does not receive the brethren. And he forbids those who wish to, putting them out of the church. There's a temptation in our flesh to want to be in charge. 
Whatever it is we're doing, if we're doing a little thing, if we're doing a big thing, there's something in us that says, my way is the best way. I was involved in the camp ministry years ago, and different pastors took turns being in charge of weeks of camp, and one year it was my turn, and I led the program and pretty much did what they'd been doing for a number of years. And this other fellow complained, complained, complained. So the next year he was in charge. And he pretty much did the same thing we'd been doing for years, pretty much the same thing I did. But oddly enough, he didn't complain. What is that in our flesh? Boy, it's wicked. It's wicked. And we, not him, we, we have to crucify our flesh. We have to get rid of those fleshly passions. Number three, our flesh craves acceptance. Nevertheless, even among the rulers, many believed in Jesus, but because of the Pharisees, they did not confess him, lest they should be put out of the synagogue, for they loved the praise of men more than the praise of God. Boy, none of us here wants to go out and be a social outcast. And it's tough to make choices to do what is right based on what is right, not what other people are going to think about it. Parents have to do this all the time. I was at McDonald's the other day, one of my rare visits down there. <laughs> was sitting in the back there, and, and there's a woman standing there near the bathroom, and I, I, I figured out right away what she was doing. She was standing guard while her child was in the bathroom. When our kids were young, we just said, go ahead, whatever. <laughs> You know, either there wasn't danger or we weren't aware of it, one of the two. Parents have to do a lot of things that are unpopular because they care for the child. And children grow up thinking, what's wrong with you? Leave me alone, let me be. And the, and the parent says, no, this is what needs to happen. The parent doesn't do it so they'll be liked. In fact, just the opposite. They know the child's not going to be that happy with what they do, but they know that it's necessary and important and, and has to be done. And that's the basis upon which we need to make choices in our life, especially in ministry. Not so that people will like us, but so that God will approve of us and we will be doing what God wants us to do. There's a fourth thing that, as I tried to scope some of these out from the Bible, that our flesh craves, and it's pleasure. Really quite simply, for many walk of whom I have told you often and now, now tell you even weeping, that they are the enemies of the cross of Christ whose end is destruction, whose God is their belly, whose glory is in their shame, who set their mind on earthly things. Quite simply put, uh, ministry takes effort. And if we love pleasure, if we allow pleasure to run our lives, ministry is going to be limited. When I was in high school, I, I did a couple different sports for several years, but I honestly don't remember being taught that I was going to have to hurt myself, that is, have some pain, in order to really progress. I didn't learn that till years later. Now I want to progress physically, and my knees are wearing out, <laughs> so I'm, I'm fighting a losing battle. But we all know that in the physical realm, if we're going to diet, there has to be some, some pain of deprivation. If we're going to exercise, we know there has to be some pain in the muscles, uh, if you're going to serve the Lord, there's going to be some depriving of your pleasure. 
you know, maybe there won't be as much time spent with family. Maybe there won't be as much money spent on things you want. Maybe, maybe there'll be some tears shed from people that keep walking the wrong way, even though you invest and invest and invest. Our flesh craves pleasure. And if we, if we regulate our ministry by pleasure, it's going to be a very, very limited ministry. Turn with me to John 13. These are the things that we have to crucify. There are also some things we've got to pursue. And Jesus summarizes it here in John 13, starting in verse 3. Another familiar passage to us. In fact, we went through it not too many months ago. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going to God, John 13, 3, rose from supper, laid aside his garments, took a towel and girded himself. And after that, he poured water into a basin and he began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel with which he was girded. Then he came to Simon Peter and Peter said to him, Lord, are you washing my feet? And Jesus answered and said to him, what I am doing now, you do not understand, but you will understand it later. And Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered, If I do not wash you, you have no part with me. Simon Peter said, Lord, not my feet only, but my hands and my head. At which point you wanted to say, Peter, zip it. Let the man tell you what he's trying to tell you. Um, Verse 10, Jesus said, He who is bathed, Needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not all of you. For he knew who would betray him. Therefore he said, you're not all clean. So when he had washed their feet, taken his garments, and sat down again, he said to them, Do you know what I've done to you? Do you understand this, fellas? You call me teacher and Lord. And the word for teacher is more elevated than it is in our mind. I mean, this is a, this is a significant, from the, from the student looking upward, it's that kind of a word. You call me teacher and Lord, and you say, well, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should do as I have done. Servanthood. It's not in the dictionary with Microsoft Word. It's not. Flags it. It's misspelling. That's because the secular world doesn't understand servanthood. We need to understand it better. Jesus said, look, I'm looking for servants. I'm not looking for tyrant dictators. I'm looking for servants. I'm not looking for people who follow their own fleshly passions. I'm looking for servants. What do servants do? First of all, servants carry out the will of their master. Do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own? For you were bought at a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. Servants carry out the will of their master. Is Jesus the Lord of your life? We say Jesus Christ, Lord and Savior, but Lord means master. In our American culture, we don't like to say anybody's our master. In fact, the whole idea of labor and management kind of chafes against the the concept that somebody would even own the business and have the right to tell them what to do. 
We, this is ingrained in us. I have the right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And don't you get in the way. God says, look, because I saved you, you were bought with a price. You, could have either, you can go to hell and suffer yourself if you'd like, but even there, the payment will never be made. There will not be an end. You will not accomplish the payment for your sin and then get out someday. He says, look, I paid the price. You owe me. In fact, I own you. A servant does the will of his master. You want to be used of God? You want your spiritual gift to shine forth? See yourself as a servant who is doing God's will. Number two, servants meet the needs of others. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. We've even coined the term in Christianity in recent years, servant leadership. There was a book written about secular businesses called Good to Great. And as a sociologist who studied companies that made a lot of money over a long period of time, and he said, these are, these are significantly successful companies, not just flash-in-the-pan type things. And do you know what one of the characteristics of all of their CEOs were? Essentially, it was servant leaders. They weren't tyrannical bosses who came in and, you know, pounded and said the bottom line's all that matters and so on. They cared for the employees. They tried to make a great work environment. They tried to build teams and so on. They were the leader and they were leading, but they were leading as somebody who has the responsibility for other people, not the person who is just putting themselves forward as something great. And that's in the secular community. Jesus said, look, I'm looking for some servant leaders. When you get a position of leadership in the church, your mentality needs to stay at servanthood. I'm here to help others. Boy, that's tough. It's tough for us to put ourselves on second. Let nothing be done through, through self-centered desire. But what is truly best for all of the people to whom I am ministering? Number three, servants get along in the body of Christ. You know, after I read that and saw it on the PowerPoint, I thought, that's not very poetic. That's not very eloquent. That's not very fancy to put up on the PowerPoint. But you know, I just couldn't say it any better. Here's, here's, how, here's how it goes with people that are earthly or uh, f- fleshly passion-driven. If you have bitter envy and self-seeking in your heart, do not boast and lie against the truth. This wisdom does not come from above, but it's earthly, sensual, demonic. For where envy and self-seeking exist, the result is confusion and evil. But the wisdom that is from above is, first of all, peaceable, gentle, willing to yield. That's where I got my phrase, servants get along. Full of mercy, and good fruits, without partiality, without hypocrisy, and the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. If we're driven by our own personal agenda, we make division. If we're driven by God's agenda, we make peace. We get along, we work together. 
I saw something that made me do a huge double take this week. I was driving across the bridge over the river. I'm just, you know, driving along, zoning out like I usually do, listening to the radio. And, and I, I kind of saw something going on over here, and I kind of went like that, and I kind of kept following and driving at the same time. There was a fellow who had been jogging, had his jogging clothes on, and he had stopped at the first flag and decided to express his opinion about the flag by taking the flag down and putting it on the ground and going like this. And then he picked the flag up and put it in the hole and jogged on. <laughs> I thought, where's my baseball bat when I need it? <laughs> I can just see the headline now. Preacher gets in trouble for defending the flag. Man, that's what I wanted to do. I thought, that isn't right. Uh, on several levels. You all had a certain visceral reaction when I did that. Do you realize that God says when we sin, we grieve the Holy Spirit? Do you suppose God does a double take? What in the world are they doing now? And it's that sin that keeps our spiritual gift from working. We've got to say no. We've got to crucify our flesh. We've got to lay it down and pursue God's servanthood so His ministry can shine forth from us. Heavenly Father, make us servants. Oh, it's hard. It's hard to crucify our flesh. Help us to do it, Lord. Make your ministry shine forth from us as we do. I pray in Christ's name, amen.